Walter and Red cried. Red spent his life doing sin, but he never told his friend anything about Zen. So Red wrote Marky a letter, and it made him feel a little better. Then Red wrote some more. Soon he had letters by the score, and these are his letters to a dead friend about Zen. Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. Today's theme song was recorded by Pink Guitars. We depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate. Today's letter was read on October 8, 2019 at the Universalist Unitarian Church in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. All right. Now should I say hello, Cleveland? Now you say hello. Hello, Cleveland. Dear Marky, I'm in Akron now. I'm scheduled to give a talk in Cleveland tonight. It's always strange to come back to Ohio. I suppose you know about this since you also moved away from the so-called heartland. Ohio is very different from the places you and I ended up moving to. I spent four years of my childhood in Africa and 11 years of my adulthood in Japan. I've also lived in Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, and Los Angeles. But even with all of that, I'm still an Ohioan. I still try to shove an R into words like warsh, and I never much liked thin crust pizza. The heartland of Ohio is also the place where I first heard the Heart Sutra. It was hearing the Heart Sutra that convinced me Buddhism was right. Even though I couldn't really understand the sutra, still it spoke to me on a deeper, more intuitive level. So since I'm in the heartland tonight, I've decided I'll talk about the Heart Sutra. This is probably the single most important piece of writing in all of Zen Buddhism. If there is a Bible of Zen, the Heart Sutra is it. But it's a very short Bible. The whole thing can fit on a single side of a sheet of letter-sized paper. To me, the most interesting aspect of the Heart Sutra is that it refutes all of the fundamental and basic teachings of Buddhism. In the very first talk the Buddha gave after his awakening experience under the Bodhi tree, he spoke about the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are, one, all life is suffering, two, the cause of suffering is desire, three, the cessation of desire is the way to end suffering, and four, the Noble Eightfold Path is the way to the cessation of desire. But in the Heart Sutra it says, no suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path. In short, no Four Noble Truths. And yet, the Heart Sutra is not considered to be a devastating critique of Buddhism. Instead, it's considered by many Buddhists to be the very essence of Buddhism. Not all Buddhists revere the Heart Sutra, but most forms of Buddhism that exist today hold it in high regard. The Zen Buddhists, however, are the ones who are the most crazy about it. Imagine if you found a secret passage in the New Testament that said, no savior, no salvation, no resurrection, no God. Now imagine this wasn't some atheist screed attacking the most cherished Christian beliefs, but was held by many Christians to be the very distillation of the true meaning of Christ's message. That's what the Heart Sutra is in Buddhist terms. And it doesn't refute just the Four Noble Truths. It goes on to refute pretty much all of the basic core teachings of Buddhism. The Heart Sutra was originally part of a larger sutra, but most folks these days only pay attention to one section of that longer sutra. It's called the Heart Sutra because it represents the heart of that larger sutra. The heart part of the Heart Sutra starts with the Bodhisattva of Compassion, known as Avalokiteshvara in Sanskrit, Kuan Yin in Chinese, and Kanon in Japanese, practicing the deepest form of intuitive wisdom. In other words, he or she is meditating. I say he or she because the Bodhisattva of Compassion is sometimes depicted as male and sometimes as female. 
He or she, or they perhaps, we don't know the bodhisattva's preferred pronouns, then makes a little speech to a guy named Shariputra, who was one of the Buddha's wisest students. The rest of the Heart Sutra is that speech. I should mention here that the Heart Sutra was composed between 500 and 1,000 years after both the Buddha and Shariputra died. Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, was not a historical person at all, but instead represents a personification of the spirit of compassion present in every person. Nobody ever insisted that the Heart Sutra was the record of an actual incident which is why some more literal-minded sects of Buddhism don't accept it. But most Buddhists don't care if the Heart Sutra is not the record of a historical incident. What matters to them is that it rings true. Besides refuting most of basic Buddhism 101, the Heart Sutra also contains these very famous lines. Form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Form itself is emptiness emptiness itself form. The idea of emptiness is one of the most popular aspects of Zen Buddhism. It's also one of the hardest to explain. Emptiness is the common translation of the Sanskrit word shunyata. There is some debate over whether the concept of shunyata dates all the way back to the Buddha, or if it's a later invention. The word shunyata is mentioned in some early Buddhist writings, but it didn't take on any real great importance until much later. Sometimes people like to awkwardly translate shunyata as as it isness instead of emptiness. When people hear the word emptiness, they tend to picture a deep, dark, scary void. But in Buddhism, emptiness means something more like things are exactly what they are and are empty of any ideas we might have about them. This includes ourselves and any ideas we have about ourselves. Those ideas are also empty. Whoever wrote the Heart Sutra also applied it to other Buddhist concepts, which is why the Heart Sutra seems to refute these concepts. The Buddha said that all life is suffering, but even that is empty in the sense I just described. The Buddha didn't mean that every second of every day you're alive is horrible. He just meant that everyone suffers and that even our happy experiences have at least a hint of sadness in them. He wanted people to stop chasing ultimate happiness. So the Heart Sutra says no suffering as a way of signaling that even the Buddha's best ideas have their limitations. This is also why Zen guys often say contradictory things. Dogen was fond of contradicting himself in order to point out the limitations of language and thought, and the way that they fail to capture what reality really is. The Heart Sutra doesn't just refute Buddhist ideas, it even refutes our basic experiences. It says that there are no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, and no mind. And it says there's no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, and no objects of mind. On the one hand, it's pretty obvious that eyes, ears, noses, tongues, bodies, and minds exist, as do the things we perceive with them. And yet, our sense organs and the things we perceive with them aren't exactly what we think they are. They are so unlike what we imagine them to be that the writer of the Heart Sutra says they don't exist at all. In other words, they are empty. Then the writer of the Heart Sutra goes on to tell us that there's no ignorance. But if you've ever been on the internet, you know that ignorance is never in short supply. He also tells us that there's no end to ignorance, so maybe he has been on the internet after all. <laughs> Actually, he means that no one ever gets rid of their own ignorance even though the early Buddhist sutras promise that you can. What's even more maddening is that the writer of the Heart Sutra then proceeds to claim that there is no old age or death. Well, you died, Marky, and I'm getting old. So between the two of us, we can say that there certainly is death and old age. But then the sutra contradicts himself by saying there's no end to old age and death. Again, he's telling us that our ideas about things are not the things themselves. 
At the end of the Heart Sutra, he tells us that there is nothing to attain. And, he says, that with nothing to attain, we have no hindrances and no fear. Without hindrances or fear, he says, we realize nirvana. Nirvana is the ultimate state in Buddhism. It means the complete extinguishing of all craving to be anything other than exactly what we are. With nothing to attain. That, to me, is another one of the key lines of the Heart Sutra. We are always trying to attain something. It could be money or power or true love. In the case of Buddhists, we're often trying to attain enlightenment. Sometimes it's not even that grandiose, though. Sometimes we just want a bit of tranquility or we want to become more mindful. Or we want to become a better person through meditation and practice. The Heart Sutra says there is nothing to attain, not even those laudable aims. Kodo Sawaki, my teacher's teacher, said, We should simply leave the water of our original nature as it is, but instead we are constantly mucking about with our hands to find out how cold or warm it is. That's why it gets cloudy. When we judge our state at the present moment according to some criteria we've invented about how it ought to be, we always find that we don't measure up. But the Heart Sutra points out that what we are at this very moment is reality at this very moment. As I've already mentioned in other letters, the style of meditation I was taught has no object or goal. There is nothing to attain in Zazen meditation. After a while of doing Zazen, we might start thinking we finally started getting better at it. But this, too, can become a problem. Sawaki Roshi also said, If we don't watch out, we'll start believing that the Buddha Dharma is like climbing up a staircase. But it isn't like that at all. This very step right now is the one practice which includes all practices, and it is all practices contained in this one practice. We may be metaphorically climbing a staircase, that is, we may actually see some improvement in ourselves after doing zazen practice. But every step we take is our reality at this present moment. That's what we need to pay attention to. The Heart Sutra has a weird ending. The final third of the piece is dedicated to praising a certain mantra as being the greatest mantra ever. This is weird because Buddhism doesn't usually concern itself with mantras. Mantras are words that were believed by earlier Indian religions to have special powers. You probably heard the Hare Krishnas chanting their mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Rama. For them, that's the ultimate mantra, and they believe that chanting it brings them closer to God. Buddhists don't generally chant mantras. Some Buddhists do, but the Zen form of Buddhism doesn't use mantras at all. So why does our favorite sutra end with a mantra? When someone asked my first teacher, Tim McCarthy's teacher, Coben Chino, why the mantra was there, Coben said, that's just Indian stuff. Indian religious writings often ended with a mantra, and the writer of the Heart Sutra followed that tradition. The mantra in the Heart Sutra is, Gate Gate Paragate Parasam Gate Bodhisvaha. It means roughly, gone, gone, all the way gone, gone across to the other shore, Hooray for enlightenment. I don't know any Zen Buddhists who go around the streets dancing and playing tambourines while chanting that mantra. That's just not our style. Most take the mantra at the end of the Heart Sutra as a nice bit of decoration, like a little bow to wrap the whole thing up. People have written whole books on the Heart Sutra, taking it apart line by line and explaining how it relates to various schools of Buddhism that existed in the past. Those books are interesting for people like me who get into the minutia of Buddhist history, but for normal people, that sort of analysis doesn't matter very much. As I said, when I first heard the Heart Sutra, I didn't even understand it. I just felt like it was saying something important. Over the years, I've reread it and chanted it hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. It still feels right to me. Since the sutra is so short, instead of signing off this letter the usual way, how about I just leave you with the sutra? This is the translation I first heard, the one by Kobanchino. 
Colbin said about the Heart Sutra, instead of writing a new sutra, your own sutra, you should read the old sutra. You read it as your sutra. You chant it as your sutra. So here goes. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita, perceived that all five skandhas are empty and was saved from all suffering and distress. Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. That which is form is emptiness. That which is emptiness is form. The same is true of feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. Shariputra, all dharmas are marked with emptiness. They do not appear nor disappear. They are not tainted nor pure, do not increase nor decrease. Therefore, in emptiness, no form, no feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. No eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. No color, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind. No realm of eyes and so forth until no realm of mind consciousness. No ignorance and also no extinction of it and so forth until no old age and death, and also no extinction of them. No suffering, no origination, no stopping, no path. No cognition, also no attainment. With nothing to attain, the bodhisattva depends on prajnaparamita, and the mind is no hindrance. Without any hindrance, no fears exist. Far apart from every perverted view, one dwells in nirvana. In the three worlds, all Buddhas depend on prajnaparamita and attain anuttara samyak sambodhi, complete perfect enlightenment. Therefore, know the prajnaparamita is the great transcendent mantra, is the great bright mantra, is the utmost mantra, is the supreme mantra, which is able to relieve all suffering and is true, not false. So proclaim the prajnaparamita mantra Proclaim the mantra that says, Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasam, Gate, Bodhi, Svaha. There you go. I hope you liked it. Brad. I grew up in D.C. going to, in, the, in the punk scene, but I'm a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. I was Saul Fugazi and oh, Rollins cool. Band and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was more around there. But anyway, I met my teacher not too long after. He's a man named Toshu Nichwari. He's uh, the heir of uh, Tosan Akiyama. The first time I ever sat with him, he did the Heart Sutra in Japanese. Oh, right, yeah. The, the Sino-Sanskrit. Kanji, Zaibo, Satsukujin, yeah. And from then on, I always preferred it in Japanese. I I don't know why, it just mm-hmm. flows off the tongue better. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, do you ever? Yeah, yeah. And, and that version that you're talking about, it's not really Japanese, because it's, cause I, like I said in there, I lived in, in Japan for 11 years, and I can vouch for the fact that most Japanese people, when they hear that version of the Heart Sutra, it is slightly more comprehensible than it is to an English speaker. I mean, mm-hmm. There's a few words in, here and there that, that a normal Japanese person can get, yeah. but most of it sounds just like you know nonsense syllables to them, too. Because it, what it is, it's the, uh, it's the Sanskrit trans translated into Chinese, and then the Chinese is, is pronounced the way Japanese people pronounce Chinese, which is different from the way Chinese people tra- pronounce Chinese. So it's like this mashup of, of three languages. Yeah, so that, that version is, I like it better, and I don't think it's really so bad to chant things. Pe- people get nervous about chanting things in languages they don't understand. And when I first started teaching in the U.S., I used to make a joke out of it, but then I started worrying people were taking it seriously. I would say, oh, yeah, this, this chant just means you're selling your soul to Satan. You know, let's chant it together. You know, uh, figuring people would get the joke, but some people seem to not get the joke. So, so I stopped saying that. Um, you know, but it, it doesn't really have any, it, you know, you, the meaning, as you just heard, is pretty benign. And it's not very religious. That's the other thing I think is funny about the Heart Sutra. A lot of things, uh, it's, it's not worshipful. You know, it doesn't, you know, it's not a prayer of any sort. It's, it's sort of a philosophical treatise, right. you know, in, in an ancient sort of uh, idiom. But it's like a piece of philosophy that you read aloud with a bunch of people in a setting that's vaguely like a church. 
you know, a temple, you know, Buddhist temples are similar in some ways, which is one of the ways that, that Buddhism, especially Zen Buddhism, is it, it uses a lot of the, the stuff, I'm trying to think of a good word, it uses a lot of the trappings, I think would be a good word for it, of religion to convey its message, but the message itself, I think, is, is non-religious. Brad, can you give a, an example of the concept of emptiness from the sutra? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, uh, let me think about that. That's a hard one to do. Well, the sutra itself just says form is emptiness, emptiness is form. Mm -hmm. And there are various ways to take that. Um, my favorite is that there's, if you kind of look at life, we tend to think of, of things as, as having, as, as most events in our life, of having, as having two sides, which are a form side, which is, you know, which is, you know, this, this, uh, what is this, this piano bench and my shoes and my head and, you know, all this sort of stuff and that microphone there, the hard concrete form stuff. And then there's another side of life which we are experiencing along with that, which um, is in a way empty in the sense that you can't really pin it down, but it's this experiential side, you know, the, the, uh, the experience of touching the, the piano bench or, you know, things like that, the experience of hearing my voice and, and so forth and seeing things. And one way of looking at form is emptiness, emptiness is form, is to say that uh, those, two, those two sides of life which seem to be eternally separate and e eternally not the same thing are actually the same thing. That's, that's one version of form is emptiness, emptiness is form. The other is what I mentioned in, or one of the others, is what I mentioned in the letter, which is that everything is empty of any ideas you have about it. So you can call this thing a piano bench, and there's some koans that are sort of like this. You know, there's one that goes, what do you call this thing? I call it a chair, but, what do you, but it's just woods and wooden nails, and I forget how the koan goes. But, um, but the idea that the koan is trying to convey is that there is, there is this thing, and we have a name for it, and we can name all the parts of it, and because we can do that, we tend to believe that we understand what this is. <laughs> but actually, this thing is, is a tremendous mystery. <laughs> you know, I'm just taking the piano bench as, a, as one concrete example. You could take anything. And we kind of go through life with a set of ideas in our minds about what's happening. And that set of ideas helps us understand, you know, whether we, need, we can go through this light or have to stop at this light or, you know, just various things we have to do, whether we should talk to this person or avoid this person and so on and so forth, whether we should run into the piano bench or go around it, you know, those kind of things. And that, that's a good way to navigate life, but we tend to make the mistake of thinking that we got this, like we understand this because we know what to call it and we know what to do if it comes into our, our um, purview or whatever, it comes into our life. You know, we either sit on it or avoid it or whatever, you know, we, we have a, a set of things we can do. But all of those are just concepts and one of the ideas of emptiness is to try as much as possible, and it's kind of impossible, but it's one of the things we sort of attempt to do if we're meditating, is try to just um, let those go. So one of the things that, like I said in the letter, that the shikantaza is the style of zazen that I do, which is, means just sitting. And the idea is that you have no goal at all. But in reality, you know, most people who sit zazen are doing something. And one of the things that we're often doing, I, I know I do this a lot, but I think most people sometimes get into this, is just trying to drop any idea of what's happening. You know, you're sitting there, and you're, you're taking this, you know, rather rigid position and sitting in front of a wall. You're looking at this wall that's blank and meaningless and, and not interesting at all with your eyes open. 
and you're just trying to stay there and and be with whatever's happening and try to drop any ideas about it. Whenever an idea comes up about what's happening, you know, my legs hurt or I wish I wasn't here or when's the goddamn bell going to ring or whatever, those ideas come up, you just try to put them away and just have the raw experience. So that's that's another idea of of emptiness. The other day I was looking and I took a picture of it to send to a friend of mine. He uh, cast in a Hashi translation. Mm. Oh, right. He did that new translation. Yeah. yeah. And it really resonated with me because he used, instead of the word emptiness, he used boundlessness. Yeah, yeah, I saw that, yeah. And he, he said, you know, boundlessness is not limited by form. Yeah. Neither are feelings, perceptions, impulses, or consciousness. Mm. I do think it's a, a good way to put it and it brings out a different layer of meaning and it sort of reminds me of something I was just up in Ojai, California um, spending the night at this place with my girlfriend and they had a book there at this uh, inn we stayed at which I don't, if, I don't know if you guys know where Ojai, California Ojai, California is like the hippie capital of California it's really <laughs> It's really hippy dippy up there, but they had this. They had this book in the lobby or in the, the little sitting room of this inn, which was David Bohm and Krishnamurti. And I don't know if you, some of you probably know those two, but David Bohm was a. He had something to do with the invention of the atomic bomb. He was a physicist, uh, very who was very into the high level stuff, stuff and um, was one of the authors of the first sort of quantum mechanics uh, ideas of the universe. <laughs> And Krishnamurti was this Indian sort of philosopher guy who's, who uh, was quite interesting because he really didn't come out of any tradition. And he spoke, it, it, when his speeches almost sound like Zen, but he was never, he, he would always, whenever he would talk about Zen, he would just express disdain for it, you know. So, but he never read any Zen. Um, but anyway, those two had become friends, and they would have these conversations, which uh, they recorded and put into a series of books. And this wasn't from one of those conversations, but it was David Bohm saying something about uh, the, 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 the way the universe operates on the you know, macro level that we're all used to and operates differently on the quantum level, which is something that our uh, scientists are really getting into these days. And it occurred to him to Bohm that why stop there? You know, if the universe is or appears to be infinite in, you know, boundless space, in bigness, it's probably also infinite in smallness, you know, so it's probably going both directions. And saying quantum level is probably just the next level down from ours and there may be countless others, you know, going on that we would never be able to to perceive at all, even exper experimentally. And I don't know, just something about reading David Bohm's statement about that, I was like going, oh, that sounds like, you know, the whole form is emptiness, emptiness is form thing, you know, going, going all the way in both directions and making it much bigger. And when you put it in the way Tanahashi put it, it puts it, it kind of makes that more clear. So yeah, I think, I think that's true. And I think everything is sort of without boundaries, even ourselves. We, we, we imagine ourselves to have a certain limit. You know, we have a temporal limit, you know, by our birth and our eventual death someday. And we have a spatial limit, you know, I'm only, you know, this big and this tall and whatever. And I, I begin here and, well, I don't know where I begin, but I end here, you know, whatever. Um, but maybe that's maybe even that is is not the right way of looking at it because you know one of the ideas in Buddhism is is this idea of interconnectedness that that we don't we don't stop you know what we're what we perceive of as ourselves as being a a concrete unit that you know operates in the world it may just be something more along the lines of of I don't know, something akin to a bubble in, in, a, uh, in water, you know. So, so the bubble and the water, when perceived from the outside, would just seem like one 
you know, complete unit. But maybe from the bubble standpoint, he's like, I'm Mr. Bubble, you know, and, a, you know, and, uh, and he doesn't think, you know, Mr. Bubble doesn't think that, uh, that he's part of the water. And then when he pops, he's like, well, I died. But he didn't die because he didn't go anywhere. <laughs> you know, the water's still all there. Um, so I, I don't want to speculate about what happens after you die, but, but it, it may be that there's, you know, that, that we're not as, as separated as we think we are. We're just sort of perceiving it that way, and that perception helps, you know, this unit called me move along the, the you know, and do the things it needs to do. But that, that perception might not be uh, the, the ultimate one, uh, which we tend to imagine it is. The, the line in the Heart Sutra about, like, attaining perfect enlightenment always kind of baffled me a little bit yeah. because... I don't do anything perfect ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, ever. So I, I kind of like that. Perfect is a really strong word. So I just wondered what your take on that would be. Yeah, it is. Yeah, Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. And I don't know, you know, they, that's usually translated as perfect, complete perfect enlightenment. So it's, it's probably a, a good enough translation, although there may be nuances we're missing in the original. Um, but the idea is, is, yeah, completeness. And... Yeah, you're right. Nothing is ever perfect, or, or perfect in the in the sphere in which humans operate, tends to be like our own invention of what's perfect. Like I was thinking about it one day a couple of years ago about this concept of pure water, and you know we have this idea, and they probably would would say that this is you know pure water, but it's pure water in the sense that we have defined what water is supposed to be, and this is what we think of as, you know, reasonably pure water. But there isn't really pure water in, in the universe. Every, every bit of water is mixed with, with something else. And even water itself is hydrogen and oxygen. So it's, it's already a mixture of two things. So it's not, it's not a, a perfect thing. So I tend to, when I think about uh, perfect, Dogen says some weird things in Shobo Genzo in which he kind of gives this idea that, that perfect means it includes imperfection <laughs> within it, you know. So, so to be perfectly uh, me, I, I am, you know, I try to be as, you know, as I try to accept what I am, you know, what this is, as it is including any sort of ideas about whether I think it should be better or worse or any of that. So, so perfection is the giving up of any idea that things should be other than what they are and, or need to be manipulated in a way in which to make them perfect. So, so perfection is when you leave things alone, you know, and go, okay, just be what you are, you know, and then, and then just let them be what they are without uh, interfering uh, with it. Of course, on a practical level, you know, things, things need to be done and, you know, stuff needs to be changed and so forth. But, you know, on the more philosophical level, you're, you're trying to let go of, of that, even while, you know, you rake the leaves or whatever it is that you, you do in life to kind of uh, change a situation from the situation you have to a different situation. And you can kind of look at meditation practice and zazen practice in the same way. You're not, you're not really doing zazen practice to attain some goal at the end of it, but you're also not doing it for nothing. You know, this is this is in Shobogenzo in Dogen's great work. He he entered Buddhist practice when he was very young. Uh, he was about. 12 or 13 years old, nobody's quite sure of his exact age, but he, both of his parents had died. His father died when he was two years old and his mother died when he was seven and then he was in the care of an uncle or something like that for the next few years and then he decided to enter monastic Buddhist practice. But his question at that age to all the monks was he read these sutras and the sutras said everything is perfect just as it is. And then he was told that to realize this perfection, he should do this meditation practice and you know, some other sorts of things that, that uh, Buddhists do. 
And he would go to these elder monks and say, why? You know, if everything is perfect as it is, why should I do all this stuff? You know, it's, it's, everything's perfect. I can just leave it alone. And he was very frustrated because no one could answer that question. And the, the story gets weird because at one point he meets this Zen master. And it's actually not clear whether he met the Zen master himself or he met the student of that Zen master. But those details are sort of the only matter to scholars. But that Zen master said, I don't know about Buddhas of the past, of the ancient past, but I know that cows exist and cats exist. And to Dogen, that was like, ah, that's the answer I've been looking for, which sounds, you know, to most of us like, what the, what? <laughs> why is that the answer? But something about that resonated with him, and he went and started studying with the student of this uh, teacher. And then the two of them, the Dogen and his, his friend who was the student of this other teacher, went to China. Uh, that guy died, and nobody, I've never seen any reference to why the other guy who went with Dogen died. But Dogen kept uh, on in China, and he finally ran across this teacher who's, in, in Japanese, his name is pronounced Tendo Nyojo, and he's pronounced differently in Chinese, but I never can get it right, so I'll just use Tendo Nyojo. And Tendo Nyojo said the enlightenment he sought, that Dogen sought, was Zazen itself. So, so Dogen had been thinking of Zazen as a means to an end, and that end was enlightenment. And this guy Tendo Nyojo said, no, it's not like that. The Zazen itself is enlightenment. To which any of you who've done Zazen you know, could probably say, that doesn't feel like enlightenment. I mean, for most people, it just feels like sitting in an uncomfortable position and waiting for somebody to ring a bell. You know, that's, that's what it feels like to me, and I've done it every day for 35 years, uh, uh, and it still feels that way. But, but something about that also clicked with Dogen, and, uh, yeah, and now I don't even remember what your original question is. <laughs> I veered so far away from it, but I, I hope that was some kind of an answer. So uh, how do you uh, let this information and these concepts and, like, desiring to not desire desirelessness inform your navigation of reality and practical life? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say. My, my teacher, I actually, when I did that letter, I decided to go with the standard version of the, the Four Noble Truths. But the teacher I had in Japan never liked the standard version of the Four Noble Truths. So his idea of the Four Noble Truths sounds very different. It was like there's the subjective experience, which is the first noble truth. There's the objective experience, the sort of more form experienced. That's the second. The third noble truth is action in the present moment. So that's what's really happening, and reality wraps them all up in a bow. So in my mind, I'm, ta I'm juggling both versions of the, of the four noble truths, because the first one I heard was the standard one. But giving up desire, I mean, if you really, if you try to take that in its sort of raw form, you can't really give up all desire. You know, it's just impossible. You're always going to want something. But I think you can learn to let go of most of, of the things, of the sort of hooks desire gets in you. So you can learn, if you work at it enough, to be comfortable with the fact that you want this thing but that even if you got it, it's not going to really make you happy, you know? Because I think that's the problem with desire most of the time, is that it's attached to this idea that if we got the thing we desired, then that would fix, you know, either... Some, for some of us, it would, we get so delusional that we think if we get this, it'll fix our entire lives. For others, you know, it's, it's more basic. You just, you know, you have that little bit of relief or, or excitement or whatever it is when you get the thing that you've, you've wanted. And that, that is a real experience, but it only lasts so long. You know, there, there are actually a lot of studies, happiness studies, they call it these days, about that phenomenon, about how uh, and it's especially interesting when you look at very wealthy people who seem to have all their, you know, desires met as far as what most of us would sort of desire in life, and and finding out that there's certain there's a certain sort of set point of happiness that can that can exist, and no matter how materially wealthy you get, you'll never you'll never get to that ultimate state, you know, 
people imagine they might if they had, you know, a certain amount of dollars in the bank or whatever, but when you actually look at people who do have that much money, they, they don't they don't have any more happiness than, than you know anybody else. If you can learn to to put that aside, then you can want whatever you want. And I my own my own experience of dealing, you know of working with that for all the years that I've worked with it is is that that's a real interesting place to be because it it feels very freeing because I can want whatever I want you know <laughs> I, I could I could come up with the craziest things that I would want and I can want them as much as I I care to want them but without this feeling or without very much of the feeling that satisfying that desire is really going to fix anything you know uh, which which I've just found to be to be great in, in practical terms you know just in practical day-to-day -day life terms I've been driving my girlfriend nuts for the last two months because I keep saying I really want I really want a milkshake I want a milkshake you know and we'll kind of go around and 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 we'll find a place that sells milkshakes and I'm I'm looking at it and I'm going yeah, I don't think I need a milkshake, right? <laughs> she, I don't know. I was just with her the other day, and she was, and I did this to her again. And she's like, "What are you doing? You keep saying you want a milkshake, and here we are in front of Shake Shack. Why don't you just go in and get a milkshake?" I'm like, "Ah, it's okay." <laughs> but you know, I'm I, I'm realizing even right now as I'm telling this story, I'm realizing I I didn't really think of it in these terms until I just started saying it just now. But that's that's my feelings. I want the milkshake, but I don't really need it. You know, it'd be great, but I don't. You know, it's just gonna, it's just gonna be empty calories, and what good does that do me? Um, but I'm still like wanting the milkshake. I especially want like a peanut butter milkshake. <laughs> you know. So like the the first part of the Heart Sutra it talks about like form is emptiness, emptiness is form, and in the English translation that you had, it it talks about. The skandhas, and it kind of oh, right. goes on to that with like form and feeling and perception and everything mm -hmm. like that. I know that's a little bit heady, so I don't know how much you want to talk about it. Yeah. But, um, so like in your in your understanding of it is when it goes on and talks about the different skandhas and how there's no form and feeling. Is there any special significance in the heart sutras? Or just another one of those things that it negates, like everything else you were talking about? I think I think it's basically just negating everything and just kind of, and I think whoever authored it chose to pick like the most cherished ideas within Buddhism as the ones to negate because that would you know probably would have the most impact on the people reading or hearing the sutra. Um, so I don't think there's any any specific you know reason other than that I mean I don't know I'm kind of looking in the head of, of somebody who died a thousand some years ago and who we don't even know the name of but um, but um, I think that's what he was going for and I and I decided I, I when I was writing this I thought well do do I need a paragraph on what the skandhas are uh, and I just decided I'll just you know just skip that, but it, you know it leaves a kind of gaping hole in that. And for those of you who don't know, the the in in Buddhism there's no idea of a soul. So so there's there the the earlier sort of Hindu idea was that there's a little piece of God that lives in every one of us, and it's called Atman, and it's identical to God. And when you die. Atman departs from your physical body and enters another body, and that's how reincarnation happens. And that's that's sort of the Hindu. That's real basic. I mean, there's some people who would argue whether that's actually what they what they mean, but that's kind of the basic idea anyway. And the Buddha was raised with that as his idea of what life was like. And during his meditation and practice, he decided that was not right. There was no Atman at all. And he, and he taught a, uh, a teaching, you probably know this, but I'm kind of saying it for everybody else, uh, called Anatman, which means no Atman. And instead proposed this idea of five skandhas, which are forms, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. And that each of us is a conglomeration of these five aspects of reality that sort of function as a unit for, you know, the duration of a lifetime and then 
you know, dissipate at the end of life. Um, but none of them is primary. So, you know, a lot of people like to put consciousness as the primary thing and say that it's consciousness that does this. But the Buddhists put consciousness as one of the five things, you know, so it's, it's no more significant than the other, than, than perceptions, which is kind of, uh, you know, that's hard if you're kind of raised in a Western way of thinking. That's hard, at least it's hard for me to wrap my head around sometimes how that, you know, how that works, but that's their idea. So yeah, I decided not to go into that, but he does say the five skandhas, the writer of this sutra, he or she, whoever wrote it, uh, says that the five skandhas are empty. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't think, th there's a whole, you can read whole books. Red Pine is a wonderful book, and, and Kaz Tanahashi has another really good book about the Heart Sutra that go into the, you know, what each of the things are that get negated in the Heart Sutra. And it's kind of, if you're interested in geeky Buddhist stuff, it's sort of interesting to see how it relates uh, to certain teachings that were known to be parts of Buddhism at the time that it was written. Um, there's the twelve-fold chain of, of uh, dependent origination is all negated in the Heart Sutra. Um, but but whoever put together the Heart Sutra doesn't go through all 12. It just goes through the first one and the last one. You know, it, uh, it doesn't really matter, but, it, it, but it's implied that it's going to go through all, all 12. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think he's just trying to say that everything is, is uh, equally empty. I, I don't know how this is related. I, uh, last year I read a, a book I've been really affected by. When you talk about form being formless, um, it's, I don't know if you know him, he's a Zen Buddhist. Uh, uh, Frank Atesti wrote a book called uh, The Five Imitations. And he that. talks about uh, being in a hospice, taking care of people who are dying. <clears throat> and he actually talked to Kubler-Ross about this. And, you know, talks about you know, the denial, these stages of All right, yeah. grief. And that she agreed with, from his experience of that there's when I, when I was thinking about when you talk about form being formless, of almost like a, an intellectual co concept that I got it, mm -hmm. but he was talking about at the end of, of mm -hmm. these stages, we think of acceptance as the end. Yeah. And he and Kubler Ross agreed that no, there's there's a chaos at the end. <laughs> when people are dying, yeah. they're beginning to realize that I am not my body. Yeah. There's physiological things going on, and this is just nutty. This is just, there's no, there's no center here. Yeah. Um, so his idea was that uh, that is the experience of this dissolution. It could be, yeah. So that, rather than being an intellectual, like, well, I understand Zen, it's, you know, there's form is formless. No, that, that the, the Heart Sutra is pointing at, at an ex, not experience is probably the bad way, but of the reality. Yeah, and, and, and this is kind of something that probably affects all of us at some point in our lives because we're all going to die. So at some point, you know, we've built up this whole thing about what we are, and at some point it, you know, goes away. And what happens, you know, after that, I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to speculate about, but, um, but having a, an easier grasp on it, you know, not this tight grasp, but a more loose grasp is probably really useful uh, at that time, I would think. But is I that something, something we can have now? That, I mean, that's yeah. what it seems to be pointing at. Yeah, yeah, I think we're, so. We're deluded, we're, you know, we're in this bardo, if you use another more Tibetan kind of yeah. idea, but, you know, that we're, you think, like we're in the matrix. Yeah. You don't, you're not realizing what the, what's actually real is that, you know, the... Uh, Piano table. Yeah, I think you know. I'm. I'm. I, li I like that you brought up the Matrix. I. I think. I think there's a few people out there I've kind of encountered, not in real life, but on the internet, who take the Matrix way too seriously. <laughs> but. But I also think, who you know, those guys who wrote it, uh, the Wachowski. I guess they're Wachowski sisters now instead of brothers. But um, it's a kind of a. It's a kind of an interesting metaphor that sounds almost Buddhist. If you take away this, this sort of specifics of, you know, being, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, all that stuff with the tubes and all this stuff. But, but the idea that we are living this life that we think we understand, but it's actually, actually what the experience we're going through even now is not the experience that we think it is. Uh, and, and, 
it's one of these things that sort of has, as I've been studying Zen all these years, it's sort of gradually kind of um, becoming more and more and more to the fore of, of my understanding of things. And I realized that most people who teach Zen don't, don't go there. Uh, and I, I accept, accept in a kind of oblique way, which is almost given in a sort of code that, for, for me, reading Shobogenzo over and over, as I've done over the years, is like peeling an onion, you know? I'm realizing, oh, this thing meant one thing to me 10 years ago, and now I read it again, and I'm like, oh, yeah, there's, there's another layer here of this, of this thing. And it, and it all sort of points to this idea of, of the experience we're having now being, being kind of a, not entirely false, but a representation that our minds can deal with of, of something that we, we can't really perceive clearly. I don't know if that makes any sense, but, but like there's a life, and I shouldn't go even into this because you'll, you'll think I'm a nutcase, but I will anyway. I, I have a friend in Japan who was one of the guys who worked for Tsuburai Productions, and now he's an independent director. And we've been talking about me writing a movie that he can, uh, he can sell to somebody in Japan and get made in Japan. And we've decided on UFOs as the theme, right? And so I've been like going crazy reading all these books about UFOs, right? And, and I'm, not, I'm not here to be, you know, Fox Mulder telling you the, the truth is out there and stuff. But, but it sounds to me like when I read some of the more interesting authors, and there aren't very many of them, who write about UFOs, that, that some of them, like there's this guy Jacques Vallée, I don't know if, you, if you're a UFO nut, you might have heard of him. But he writes about UFOs and he says, that he, he believes they're an indication of, of just what I said, that we are living in a world that we think we understand, but we don't understand it. And sometimes there are things that are happening around us which are reality, but they are so unlike what we have been taught you know, to understand uh, of reality that we can't make any sense of them. You know, so, so people will experience them as like, you know, a, a, an alien spaceship landing on their backyard, you know, somewhere, or just some bizarre things um, that, that they'll, uh, they'll perceive. Um, and he's saying, well, these people aren't crazy. I mean, some of, them, some of them are crazy and some of them are just hoaxes. But there's a lot of people who are experiencing something real and it's just something that's so outside of our usual frame of reference that we can't, you know, that, that our, our minds are trying to make sense of it, you know, and telling us a story about it that sort of fits the cultural narrative of what possibly could happen that would manifest in that, in that uh, sense, in that way. And then, and then that's what we come away from it, you know, going, yeah, I saw this thing. Um, I just think that's an interesting idea, and and yeah, that's my crazy for the for the evening. <laughs> my crazy UFO stuff for the evening. I've always wondered what's your take on when they talk about transmission outside of the supers. Well, yeah, that's. Um, I mean, there's there's that idea. There, uh, I think it's attributed to is it Bodhidharma or something? But he's talking about Zen is a is a transmission outside of the sutras, so. So it's a direct mind-to-mind -mind transmission. And in, in Zen, there is a sort of formulaic ceremonial way to do this. And sometimes it's done so carelessly that it's basically meaningless. But it's called Dharma transmission. You've probably heard of it, where a teacher confers upon a student that, that, they, have, that they both understand the Dharma to the same degree and therefore the, the student can now teach independently, um, you know. And sometimes this is just sometimes this is just a formulaic thing that people just go through as a ceremony, and somebody signs some papers and says, "Here you go." I tend to think of it if it's actually happening, it's it's a bit like this is a terrible metaphor, but it's a bit like falling in love. You know, you can't really define falling in love, but but two people recognize that they have fallen in love. And, and the definition of what that means is only available to them, but they, 
they accept that it's a real thing that has happened, you know, and then you know, they might have a ceremony and get married or whatever. And, and I think Dharma transmission in Zen is ideally supposed to be something like that. I mean, without the sexual angle, obviously, but, but it's supposed to be an understanding between two people of, of having a common ground and, and therefore being able to express that uh, well, maybe not. Maybe not necessarily being able to express it, but but you know, having the sort of um, permission to try to express it as best they can is supposed to be a way. So that's you know, when I hear that transmission outside of the scriptures or outside of the sutras, that's usually what I envision. You know, it, its meaning being. I'd like to hear your thoughts on what I think of as the framing of the Heart Sutra. When they extracted it, they brought with it, the framing of a conversation. Yeah, they did, yeah. And so that, that aspect of putting it in a context, a, a message to a dead friend, if you will, yeah. um, how does that affect the sutra as a whole? Well, it's, inter- it's interesting that you ask it that way because it makes me think of it differently. When I decided to write my book with that framing device of letters to my friend, I suddenly all this Buddhist, these sort of Buddhist concepts, basic Buddhist concepts, seemed vital to me again. You know, when I was writing, I originally started writing it more as a sort of textbook. You know, here are the basic ideas of Buddhism, and it was just boring as hell to me, and and it didn't it didn't have any life to it. But when I framed it as letters, and when I pictured you know, this sort of composite character of my two friends as the person who would, you know, I, I know, I, I assume he can't magically receive the letter, but, you know, who knows, maybe there's some realm in which he can, I don't know. But I, I, I'm not, that's not the reason I wrote them that way. But I'm, I'm picturing him, I'm picturing a specific person that I'm trying to tell this stuff to. And, and that forces me to to put something into it, like, why is this important, you know? Instead of just saying, well, there's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, I have to say, well, you know, who cares if there's Four Noble Truths and an Eightfold Path, you know? What's that, you know, what's that got to do with anything? And that really helped make the book work. Uh, and, and I would suspect that the, the person who wrote the Heart Sutra or wrote the Longer Sutra maybe had a similar objective. You know, maybe it, it made those concepts more relevant to put them, you know, that was a kind of standard thing to do in those days is to, instead of just writing a philosophical treatise, treaties like Western people do, was to frame them in, in forms of conversations and stuff. We had that in the West too, like Plato did, did his writing that way. I think Plato did, or you know, there were, these philosophers did it, but it sort of fell out of fashion after a while and people were just writing things to kind of an anonymous audience. But the Indians never really did it that way. The Indians always, always wrote, you know, wrote stories around them, you know, which, which makes Indian philosophy, on one sense, it can make Indian philosophy like sound crazy, you know, because there's always some bizarre story surrounding it. Like, I've never, you know, to my shame, as important as the Lotus Sutra is to Buddhists, I've never been able to get through the entire Lotus Sutra. You know, I've tried, but I'm just like, ugh, I can't stand this. Because it's like there's people flying through the air and shooting laser beams from the middle of their forehead. And, you know, I mean, literally, that stuff is written in the sutras. And I'm going, what the hell is this, you know? Just tell me what the philosophical concepts are and, and don't tell me about the guy flying... You know, there's one where somebody descends from another planet and, and uh, comes down. Those, the UFO fanatics love that part of the Lotus Sutra. You know, there's, there's all sorts of stuff in there. And to us it seems unnecessary, but maybe to those writers, putting it in that way made it, made it more real. You know, like Shariputra, Shariputra, who that sutra is addressed to, you know, we don't have a, a strong image of Shariputra. If you study Buddhism, you might have an idea of who Shariputra was. But even I've been studying it for, you know, all these years. I don't have that clear idea of Shariputra. But maybe it would be sort of like, you know, to try to fit it into an American vernacular. Maybe it would be like putting 
you know, Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King or somebody like that in the story, you know, and having them have the dialogue. And then you'd have a sense of, oh, that's who's talking, you know, that's who's, you know, saying this thing. It's that guy who, uh, you know, freed the slaves talking to that guy who was, a, you know, the descendant of slaves, you know, whatever, I don't know. You know, having a conversation, that would be a book. Somebody should write that book. Actually, <laughs> I won't do it. Maybe some of you might have an interest in doing the, the conversation between them. That would be a kind of a fun book. But anyway, you know, it might have that kind of a, an appeal to them, you know, that, that to, to the people who understood who these characters were supposed to be. Like Shariputra was supposed to be a super intellectual, you know, who, who knew everything about everything and, uh, and could, you know, could blab out all the facts that you wanted about things. And have the bodhisattva of compassion, who's like a you know completely opposite character, say, "Hey, Shariputra, here's what's going on," probably made it more you know more real to the audience. Thank you very much. Thank you, right, Cleveland. Thank you. We depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info/donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate.